From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Looks like another beautiful day is in the works here in uh, Kalamata, Greece. As I look out my window, coming to you live from the Elite City Resort Hotel in Kalamata. Uh, this will be our, this is our second to last uh, broadcast. Uh, and I have to again, again thank the, uh, the wonderful staff here at the Elite City Resort. Uh, so helpful, so courteous, so uh, genuinely warm, welcoming, and uh, and kind. And I can say that for the um, for the rest of the, uh, the citizens in, uh, of uh, Kalamata, uh, as um, North Zach and the mighty Aphrodite, who has now joined us, and I continue to ins- uh, the life here in this wonderful country. Uh, as I say, second to last program coming to you live from Kalamata. Next week will be the last one, and then the family heads on up to Athens for a few days before heading back to uh, Canada. Uh, you know, this program uh, deals in secrets and uh, conspiracies and mysteries. When we're talking, when we're talking about secrets and mysteries, there's probably uh, no greater place, uh, no a place that greater exemplifies uh, secrecy. Um, and mystery than Area 51. And there is a new book out about Area 51. Uh, many people are calling it one of the best on the subject. And uh, we're going to talk about Area 51 uh, over the next hour in part, but we're also going to talk about the group, the UFO control group, which has been in charge of keeping a lid on uh, UFO uh, and ET secrecy. And of course, that dovetails nicely with what with what might be going on at Area 51. Some believe this base in Nevada has been used to house uh, UFO, uh, UFOs that have been retrieved from UFO crash sites and perhaps even house uh, alien bodies, perform autopsies on alien bodies, uh, back engineer UFO craft. All of this said to be going on in Area 51. And as I say, this control group trying uh, desperately to keep a lid on this. Now, uh, nearly 70 years later after the uh, the crash in uh, Roswell, New Mexico. So, my good friend sitting in studio back in Toronto, keeping my chair warm, Victor Vigiani is going to help us in this conversation. Victor from Zealand News Network. How are you, my friend? Just fine, and the chair is warm. <laughs> and you just, uh, <laughs> you just beat me back from Europe. You were over in Spain. You just got back uh, a few days ago. That's right. Got back on Sunday, uh, made our flight back to Toronto, and everything worked out just fine. Had a great time with, uh, uh, with a few friends and traveled around Spain for about two weeks. And, everything. Uh, and your new grandfather. That's correct, yes. A little, Congratulations. Little, thank you. Little Julian arrived on July 25th and uh, actually made the airwaves on, uh, on another radio station. Well, that's another topic for another time. Wonderful. Congratulations. Victor Vigiani always sits in when we discuss matters concerning UFOs and ETs. And uh, it's always uh, a pleasure for Victor and I to welcome Grant Cameron back to the program. He's been involved in ufology, um, well, for many, many years, uh, going back to uh, the mid-1970s, really, after some personal sightings of an object which locally became known as the Charlie Red Star. Uh, he's best known these days as the, uh, the founder of the President's UFO website, www.presidentialufo.com, and as I mentioned, his latest book is entitled UFOs, Area 51, and Government Informants. Grant Cameron, great to have you back on the program. How are you? Just doing fine, Richard. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it, and uh, good evening to Victor. Hi, Grant. The new book, The Government Informants Aspect, is fascinating to me, and we'll, we'll touch on that um, as the program 
digresses. But I, I want to talk about this this UFO control group, and you've written about this recently on your um, on your website, presidentialufo.com. Uh, I'm, I'm gathering that what you mean by this UFO control group is what has become become legendary, legendarily known as Majestic 12. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And uh, it sort of starts back in 1987 with the uh, release by Bill Moore and Jamie Shandery and Stanton Friedman of the uh, Majestic 12 document, the MJ-12 document. Uh, which I believe has been altered. I don't believe it's the original document, but it is basically uh, was released to sort of give us the idea that uh, such a group did exist. And the way I got very interested in this was just after the document was released in 1987, um, I was headed up a team of uh, researchers who came in contact with a guy who was the former president of Penn State University. And um, just days after that document was released at the MUFON conference in Washington, D.C., uh, a friend of mine, Bill Steinman, who's no longer in the field uh, from California, uh, phoned up Dr. Eric Walker because through the Canadians uh, in the 1950s, we had learned that he had attended a series of briefings at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base uh, dealing with uh, the recovery of a flying saucer on the, in the western United States alien bodies, and one of the people who had been in Washington and heard stories about the, these briefings had uh, sort of uh, squealed on Dr. Walker. And so anyway, Bill Steinman, days after the MJ-12 document was released, uh, phoned up Dr. Walker and said, Dr. Walker, uh, I've learned from Dr. Robert Starbacher, who's the guy who sort of uh, outed him, from Dr. Robert Sarbacher that you attended a series of briefings at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base dealing with the recovery of a crash flying saucer and alien bodies. And Walker said, yeah, I was there, so what? And uh, Steinman got very upset. <laughs> I was there, the most... I saw alien bodies, <laughs> so what? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and uh, he said, well, why, do you, why are you so interested in that? And so Steinman starts about, you know, this is the most important subject, whatever. And he said, Dr. Walker, I have this document in front of me, uh, called MJ-12, the MJ-12 document, and Walker basically cuts him off and he says, look, I've known of them for 40 years. Leave it alone. There's nothing you can do about it. Go study something else. And that started about an eight-year conversation where Walker would try not to talk to people and there was people from Toronto and London and all over the place trying to get him to talk. But he basically, from a couple days after the MJ-12 document was released, confirmed, yes, I've known of them, MJ-12, for 40 years. The interview took place in 1987. You go back 40 years, it's 1947. So right from 1987, whatever people might think about the document, I knew for a fact that MJ-12 existed because uh, we had this inside track, and we wouldn't release the first book on Dr. Walker till 1991, but we knew in 1987 that he had confirmed, yes, he had known of MJ-12, and he confirmed this was basically uh, dealing with extraterrestrials and uh, then tried to talk around not giving us any of the answers as to what was going on. So it's just something that's very much interested me, and it, it makes sense in terms of American politics and stuff like that. Like uh, you can say the government is sort of uh, dysfunctional, deadlocked, but they're not stupid. I mean, they they, they came across this uh, crash at Roswell, New Mexico, maybe even crashes before then, and uh, they're basically uh, just setting up a group. They operate it like any other uh, highly secretive 
organization. They have people who have been assigned the, the, the project and to try to figure out what's going on. It, it makes total sense that such a group would have been established. Who established it and, and when? Give us a timeline and, and who, who made up Majestic 12 as far as you know. Okay, according to the document, and I think the document is fairly accurate, the uh, the group was set up by uh, uh, President Truman, and uh, it, the group consisted of a bunch of uh, scientists and uh, military people. Uh, one of the key scientists that was that was on the group was uh, Dr. Vannevar Bush, and uh, he has also been identified by the Canadians in 1950. Uh, the Canadian government wanted to know what was going on with flying saucers in the United States because the uh, the first sort of major book had come out, uh, the Kehoe book on flying saucers, and the first book on crash flying saucers, the, the Aztec crash by Frank Scully, had been released just at that time in September 1950. And the Canadians had gone to the Americans to find out what's what's the what's the deal on on flying saucers, and they were basically told that it was the most highly classified subject, and they were told that there was a group headed by Dr. Vannevar Bush, who was in charge of the UFO. Now his name appears on the MJ-12 document, so he's sort of the uh, sort of the lead scientist, as he was the lead scientist during World War II. He was the science advisor to President Roosevelt. Was in charge of the. Uh, scientific side of the uh, development of the atomic bomb, proximity fuse, jet engine, homing torpedo, radar, uh, all the inventions during World War II, Vannevar Bush headed them up uh, in terms of the administrator for these. So Vannevar Bush is in charge of UFOs, and he appears on this this document that, uh, suppose, that says that um, President Truman established it, and the document itself was a briefing paper that had been produced for uh, President uh, Eisenhower after Truman left. As people know, the president before usually uses his CIA director, but at, at that point it was uh, the president and the CIA director who would brief the incoming president. So this is what the MJ-12 document is. It's a document that's sort of uh, briefing President Dwight Eisenhower in 1952 as to what the situation is on flying saucers, because he's about to become the president. Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network joins us in studio and on the uh, on the line uh, from Winnipeg, I believe, is uh, Grant Cameron, the UFO historian and the author of the newly published UFOs Area 51 and Government Informants, and of course the website presidentialufos.com. Uh, but the actual task of this this group, Majestic 12, was it? simply to study the phenomenon, or was it to um, provide, uh, uh, or, or was it to put a lid on the information that was coming, to put a lid to prevent the public from knowing about UFOs, is what I'm trying to say. Well, it's it's all of the above. It's the way they deal with everything. It's not just UFOs that they do this with. It's, it's basically everything. It's like, for example, uh, when you come to the Area 51 story, um, we knew already because uh, John Lear was involved in this, that uh, he had gone on to the base, this is in the 1970s, and he'd got a picture of a MiG at Area 51. So it was at that point that uh, it became known that the uh, the Israelis had uh, captured a Russian MiG and that they were back-engineering this and test-flying it at Area 51. So basically what happens is, whether it's a MiG or whether it's a flying saucer, uh, the way I look at it is they come across this crash flying saucer in Roswell, New Mexico. They look at it. 
uh, they go like, wow. I mean, look at the technology. They realize that mental phenomena is involved. They realize that the mind is, is, is con- controlling the craft. And so they basically just say, we, this technology is, is extremely important. And they basically classify it as they do every other high tech, uh, weapon t- development system. And it's, okay. that's why it's been. I gotta jump in here. Quick. We'll take a time out. We'll yep. come back. Talk yep. about. Majestic 12, Area 51, Victor Vigiani from presidentialufo.com. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Curiosity? Or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Live from the Elite City Resort Hotel in Kalamata, Greece. Uh, joining us back in studio in Toronto, our good friend Victor Vigiani, the executive director of Zealand News Network. And uh, joining us via Skype from Winnipeg, Manitoba, is Grant Cameron, UFO historian, the author of UFOs, Area 51, and Government Informants. And again, his website is presidentialufo.com. And uh, we're discussing, among other things, uh, a UFO government control group Majestic 12. Let me throw it over to Victor. Yeah, Grant, I uh, just want to find out from you. Um, it's always been of interest to me. Uh, I have a series of documents indicating that the, you know, the Canadian government, and I use that term loosely, I guess, uh, scientific groups within the government back in, I guess, in the early 50s, um, they had some sort of interest along with following the, uh, the United States Air Force lead on UFOs. Um, the the idea of the connection between the American government and the Canadian government, uh, how what sort of lockstep uh, interaction did the Canadian government have uh, with the United States in terms of either following the lead of the American government or initiating their own uh, interest in UFOs? What what is the connection between the, the Canadian government and the American government with respect to this? Okay, I, I would first clarify that it wasn't the U.S. Air Force and the Canadians even identified the fact, that fact. Uh, when Wilbur Smith, who sort of wrote the memo to the Department of Transport identifying what was going on in the United States, when he wrote it up, he referred to the fact that he was dealing with American officials. And in he died in 1962, and near the end of his, uh, just before he died, uh, if you've seen his files, you'll see a handwritten uh, note that he made. He couldn't use a typewriter anymore. He was so sick. He had a handwritten message, and he was being asked. The uh, Ohio people knew he was dying, and they were pressuring him to talk about crash flying saucers and all the material that the Canadians had handled because uh, it's been identified by him and also by James Smith, his, his oldest son, that a lot of the material from various crashes and stuff that was recovered was coming to Canada and was being analyzed in Canada, so they were cooperating there. But just before he dies, he does this handwritten memo or answer to these Ohio people, people and he basically says uh, there's a lot of crash material but it's not in, and he puts it in brackets and t- capital letters, not U.S. Air Force. It's in official hands. So the Canadians were dealing with officials, and the way they would do it is through the military liaison rather than going Air Force, Air Force, because in a lot of ways the Air Force really doesn't know what's going on either. 
what the assumption is is that there's this group headed by Dr. Vannevar Bush, this MJ-12 group, who's connected to the military-industrial complex, uh, the weapon-type stuff. So the Canadians used a guy by the name of Arnold Wright, who was the military liaison, and he was going through the Canadian Embassy to the Research and Development Board. And the Research and Development Board was the extension after World War II. What happened, they had been so successful during World War II in developing the atomic bomb and proximity fuse and homing torpedo and all these different inventions that after World War II, they wanted to continue this this really well-oiled machine for developing weapons. And what they would do is they would hire professors, uh, like on contract. Professors would, would input on various uh, types of inventions. And the Research and Development Board headed up uh, all the weapon research. And that's where Vannevar Bush came from. That's where Dr. Eric Walker was the executive director at one point. So these are the sort of the, the weapon people. And if you sort of keep that in mind, you can sort of establish that it's really not uh, like – the, the military, it's more the weapon people that are that are looking at this technology. So that was the connection. And you can see uh, the Canadians are in the loop on a number of things. And one of the things I say now is very key that I, I'm figuring out, I think a lot of people in the UFO community are figuring out, and that the Canadians have figured out in 1950, was the fact that they were told that there are other things that might be associated with the flying saucers, such as mental phenomena. Now, since that point... Uh, we now know that mental phenomena is an, a key part to the UFO mystery. It's a key part in figuring out how this thing works. And the Canadians were told this in 1950. And what Wilbur Smith stated in the memo was that if the Americans aren't doing very well because they've asked that if anybody in Canada is working on it, they're willing to exchange credentials and work with us. So that's basically the way it works is if you have a need to know whether you're in another country or the United States, if there's somebody in Canada who's working on it, then they're willing to cooperate on us, uh, cooperate on this. And what you'll see, uh, another cooperation that took place, this memo was put out in December of 1952, 1950, December 1950, the memo was signed off by the Department of Transport. Six months later, there's a meeting that takes place in Montreal. Uh, uh, Oman Salant, who is mentioned in the Flying Saucer memo, is at the meeting. Uh, a guy named Tizard, who's the top scientist in the UK, is there. A bunch of CIA people are there, and that's the first meeting for MK Ultra. So you can see that they're talking about mental phenomena, and suddenly the Canadians. 12, uh, Sorry, uh, or was it MK, MK Ultra? Did you say? May MK Ultra was started six months after. Oh. The memo okay. talking about mental phenomena. The, this memo came out saying that the the Americans wanted to work on mental phenomena with the Canadians, and suddenly six months later, you see the main one of the main guys who's mentioned in the memo, who's Dr. Oman Salant, who headed up all the weapon development programs in Canada. Uh, he's at the meeting. The CIA's at the meeting. The head scientist in this in Britain is there, and that's when MK Ultra is, is started. And they have this Dr. Ewan Cameron at uh, McGill yeah. University. He's doing the psychic, psychic driving experiments. So that's the basic way it works: is that if you have if you can work on a program and it's but it's this military research type thing rather than thinking of it as the military. Once it's been developed, once the weapon is developed, then it gets assigned off to a to a say a, a military uh, like Air Force or Navy or Army or whatever. Right. But they're basically just the people who use the weapons. The weapons are developed not even by scientists. They're developed by engineers. So there's this process of, of, of looking at it, and that's why I say MK, uh, the Majestic 12 group that ran the, the cover-up, the whole thing was just for weapons. It was like to uh, develop the policies, and then you would send it up to the president, and the president is just basically signing off 
but these people are to control the phenomena so that the Russians don't get it, the Chinese get it, and it's always looking at this lead time thing for weapons, that if we can develop this technology, if there's ever a war, we have the lead time, we use the weapon, and the other side, it's, it's the, the war is over because they haven't got enough time to develop the weapon. So it's always this, this development of who's going to develop this technology first, sure. and I'm sure in, I mean, in 1947 they looked at it. First time I've actually heard, uh, you know, a, a connection between MK Ultra, which we spend a lot of time talking about on this program, uh, you know, various mind control type programs, and the UFO phenomenon. This is an area I'd like to explore maybe on another show, just that that connection, if we could. But if I could get back to the um, the makeup and the mandate of Majestic Twelve, what was their mandate, whether it came from Truman or later presidents, in terms of how they were to deal with the media? Uh, that were attempting to cover the UFO phenomena. What was their mandate? To lie to them? To obfuscate? To infiltrate? Well, it's just to operate the same as they do for everything. It's 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 everything is secret. Um, it, all the mil- and it's not just flying saucers. I mean, you take any sort of uh, weapon development program, it's secret. They have uh, I can't remember what it is, but it's like the tremendous amounts of money are spent on disinformation for all different types of uh, weapon development programs. Uh, to keep it secret, to keep it away from the Russians and the Chinese. So it's this, it's this program that's being used on all sorts of different things. And Majestic 12 was just in control of this very highly secret, uh, organization because they realized the significance of the fact that this was, this was so, uh, the, the technology was so amazing that you, you absolutely couldn't allow this thing to, to leak out. It was, it was just like, as the Canadians were told in 1950, this was classified two points higher than the hydrogen bomb. And the hydrogen bomb would not be detonated till two years after that memo was written. So they said it was the most highly classified secret in the United States. So you have this group that is in control of everything, of, of uh, the secret, of dealing with the media, of dealing with the president, of dealing with the whole thing. And the key thing is to develop it before the Russians and the Chinese and to absolutely keep it secret so that nobody knows what's going on. And in, in looking at it that way, I mean, they have been successful. They have been able to uh, sort of control the situation. But their thing is to uh, gather the material, to, you know, deal with it, to develop the technology, and most of all is to, is to keep it secret. Victor, over to you. Yeah, I actually, I've, I've got a, a memo directly from the Joint Intelligence Committee. Uh, it's, it's signed by G.S. Austin. And this is back in 19, August the 4th, 1950, Grant. And just okay. sort of uh, relevant to exactly what I, I, I was talking to you about earlier, that um, that the United States Air Force, it states in this memo, it's called Flying Saucers from the Secretary of the Joint Intelligence Committee, it says uh, the present USAF policy is to play down uh, the significance of UFOs, investigating only when considered necessary. So basically what the United States Air Force was doing was playing down the whole aspect to the media of UFOs. And then in this memo, a Canadian memo, it says that we shall be in, in lockstep with the United States Air Force in playing down any reports of UFOs. So I guess the, the point that I'm trying to make is that back in 1950, it was quite clear that the Canadian government, uh, is, uh, you know, tested to by the Joint Intelligence Committee memo, was in, in lockstep with the United States Air Force, not just the government, about playing down the UFO reality uh, to, the, to the Canadian public. Um, and it's quite clear in this memo that that uh, the United States Air Force and the Canadian government were um, were sort of jointly uh, keeping a lid on this stuff. 
Oh yeah, there, there's no doubt about that. But I, I would say that you ha- the way I look at it is is there's various levels. There's uh, you get your Joint Intelligence Committee, but the thing is, are they read in? I mean, it looks like they're the the top guys. The same as the president. There's always the story: is the president actually read in, or is he even not not knowing what's going on, or only be given little bits and pieces of it? Who's actually running the show? And that's where it comes down to MJ12. Is doesn't answer to anybody. And there's this story that was told at the uh, at the um, uh, the hearings in Washington with that Steve Bassett put on the citizens hearing where Jesse Marcel, I contacted him and I, I wanted to get a story. I was going to put it in my testimony. And that was the story that had been told to him by this, uh, uh, Dick, Dick D'Amato. And, uh, he didn't respond to me, but in the hearing, he tells the story and he tells the story of being in Washington, DC. And, uh, he, he, comes in contact with this Dick D'Amato guy. Now, I knew about him because I knew Dick D'Amato had gone to Area 51. I knew that Dick D'Amato had been hired by the uh, uh, Senate Appropriations Committee. And they're key because the Senate Appropriations Committee is in charge of the U.S. budget. So anything that's spent has to go through the Appropriations Committee. Now, when the Area 51 story broke in 1989... The Appropriations Committee, headed by Senator Byrd and a bunch of other senators, suddenly looked at each other and said, are we actually fly, are we actually paying for flying saucer technology at Area 51? And if we are, we have no idea. We've never authorized this. And they send this Dick D'Amato to Area 51. And he's got all the clearances. He's got everything. He's able to talk to everybody. But Dick D'Amato, this is the story that's told at the uh, citizens hearing. Uh, Jesse Marcel says, Dick D'Amato says, I want to talk to you. And they take him to the secret room, 227 in the, in the Senate building and says to him, you know, I want to talk to you about Roswell. And Marcel says, well, I've said everything. I've, I've got nothing to tell you on Roswell. He said, no, I want to tell you something. And he's got a book and he puts the book on the table and the book is the, the book called Majestic written by Whitley Strieber. Now he doesn't have a Roswell book. If you want to talk about Roswell, he would put the Roswell book on the table. He's got the book by, uh, called Majestic. About from Whitley Strieber on there, and he points to the book. He says, I just want to let you know that everything in that book is true. And he says, there's a group. They're responsible to nobody. They aren't elected. They have unlimited sums of money, and they are running the show. And this was what he came to the conclusion after he'd been to Area 51, after he'd been around and he'd asked all these sort of questions. He basically says the majestic concept is true. There's an organization outside the government that has money, they're not elected, and they are running the show. And this is exactly what Dick D'Amato told Stephen Greer. Stephen Greer was 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 dealing with Dick D'Amato, and Dick D'Amato says, "I have the I had all the security clearances that you could get in the U.S. government. I had unlimited power, and I was not able to get anything. I just want to tell you," he says to Stephen Greer, "You're up against the varsity. You're up against the black, or the the varsity team of all black budget programs. Good luck, and be careful." And that's what he says to him. And that basically confirms the fact that this this is above the government. This is above uh, the Congress. This is a separate organization, this majestic organization. Well, here we are 70 years later, roughly, and we still have Majestic yeah. 12, I'm assuming. So who's, yeah. who's, who's appointing new members? How do they... Well, that was one of the questions we asked to Dr. Walker. We asked Dr. Walker, we said, are they, are they, is there more than 12? And he basically indirectly confirmed, yes, there's more than 12 now. And he was asked, are they all Americans? Because it started as an American group. And he says, no, which indicates this whole Illuminati thing that it's probably uh, very uh, 
you know, rich people, uh, that control the money in the world are controlling the oil and also are controlling this group. And you can see some aspects of this in this latest, uh, Snowden story, which is amazing. If you see the similarities between the Snowden story, Snowden leaks this material and it becomes public that the Americans are spying on the Europeans. Okay, and I got to jump in here, Grant. Sorry, I got to okay. jump in. We'll, we'll pick up on that point okay. when we come back. Coming to you live from the Elite City Resort in Kalamata, Greece, Grant Cameron, Victor Vigiani, talking Majestic 12 on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back from the Elite City Resort Hotel in Kalamata, Greece. Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network back in our Toronto studio. And Grant Cameron via Skype from Winnipeg, Manitoba. Grant, of course, the man behind presidentialufo.com, uh, an absolutely magnificent uh, website. And uh, his latest book is UFOs, Area 51, and Government Informants. And we're talking about the... Uh, the government uh, UFO control group. Well, I, we used to. I guess it used to be the government UFO control group, Majestic Twelve. But it seems to have um, taken on a life of its own. Frankenstein's monster has gotten up off the table and walked out of Frankenstein's castle. Uh, so, just a, a, you, you wanted to make a few points uh, more about that regarding sort of the parallels between Majestic Twelve and the uh, and the Snowden case, and then I'll throw it back to Victor Vigiani. So, yeah. uh, continue along with that uh, line of uh, thought. Grant. Yeah, I, I think it's important to see what's going on in the Snowden case because it sort of gives you an idea how you can have a group like this, which sort of is answerable to nobody, and you it sort of gives you sort of cuts away all the illusions as to political parties and and nationalities and stuff. And that is that when Snowden went public, he stated that the Americans were uh, spying on the Europeans. Now there's a lot of Europeans were very upset parliamentary people speaking out. But if you look closely, there was no backlash from intelligence agencies in Europe. And even more important is when he asked for asylum from the Soviet Union, this happened a couple weeks ago when he first asked for asylum, this, the, the Soviets said, we will consider the asylum request provided he quits talking about it. Now they have yes, given that. him yes. one year asylum and under conditioned that he no longer talks about it. Like this is like they're all working together. Like all the whether it's the NATO, whether it's G20, it's like the, everybody. It's one big party where everybody's exchanging material. You can you can spy on your people. We'll spy on our people. They're exchanging material, and that gives you the idea that MJ12 works the same sort of way. Probably works the same sort of way in that everybody's together, and you think that you're you're, you're fighting the Russians, and actually the you know Russians are in, in with your guys. There there really are no boundaries. That it's one big uh, power packed organization. Sure. Sure. I think that's at the top, the whole all these show. alphabet intel groups are all working or answering to the same people. We just this is a short uh, segment, so I want to I want yeah. to throw it over to Victor quickly and get in a, a a quick question before we have to break again. Yeah, uh, actually, what I wanted to pick up on was that in the in the uh, updated version of the book, you really go out of your way to indicate that evidence really suggests that there's a really slow kind of moving uh, process of some kind of disclosure going on, all mixed in with information and disinformation. Uh, what sort of impetus or what sort of, um, I guess, movement towards any kind of disclosure is really 
really going on, and 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 is it a mixture of disinformation, uh, inf- uh, solid information, and and why are they doing that? Uh, I think they're doing it uh, because they don't want people back in 1947 if this thing suddenly breaks and they can't control it. Uh, one of the key guys that that I sort of quote in the book, I quote Dr. Kit Green who was uh, at one point in the 70s and 80s noted as the guy inside the CIA who controlled the UFO files. He's still sort of involved in UFOs, but he's, he's a medical doctor now. Uh, and he stated, uh, if you were the government, what would you do? He said, uh, you know, how would you handle this situation? You, you can look at it from the outside and say it's all bad, but if you happen to be the guy that's that's handling the story, what do you do? So he says, well, wh- what you would do is you would put out stories, you know, crazy stories, the aliens are eating your kids and all this sort of stuff, so that when the story breaks, people say, well, what's going on? And they say, well, it's just extraterrestrials visiting. And then, of course, the people say, well, you know, what, what do you mean there's – they're not eating our kids. They're not. They're not taking over the world. And they say no. They're just here visiting. And then you go like, "What's the big deal?" So you hype it up. And this is actually from a guy from the CIA who who would be in a, been in charge at one point. And that's what I think they're doing is they're just putting it out. And they're but they're protecting the classified aspects of the program, which is the uh, technological stuff, the mind control stuff, all that kind of stuff that they can build weapons out of. But they want you to know there's a live alien. They want you to know there's stuff at Area 51. They want you to know that that uh, ETs are here. They want all that kind of stuff. But you can't you can't spill the milk because once you spill the milk and you make a, an open disclosure, you lose control of the story. And they still want to control the story. This, this way they can get the stuff out and it, it gives the president another 10 years or 15 years or the military to develop weapons and to get uh, farther ahead. So that's what they're doing. They're, they're, uh, that's my impression. They're, they're trying to get the basic core story out as to what's going on and at the same time protect the classified material. So they're really trying, yeah, they're really trying to control things through, I guess, just sort of misdirection and lies and, and, and actual disclosure may even not be, in fact, uh, true disclosure. Yeah, they're, they've mixed it up. Even you go back to 1952, just before the Robertson panel, where they talked about using Walt Disney and stuff like that. Even before then, 1952, the U.S. Air Force came up with the term UFO. And the reason I say they did it, because you'll see Wilbur Smith from Canada never used the word UFO or almost never used the word UFO. I think he knew what it was. It was a diversion tactic to stop talking about flying discs and flying saucers. A quick time out. We'll come back and pick it up on the other side. Majestic 12, UFOs, Area 51, Victor Vigiani in Studios, Elan News Network, Grant Cameron, PresidentialUFO.com. Back with more. Stay with us. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Our fourth of five shows that are coming to you live from Kalamata, Greece, and the Elite City Resort Hotel here in this beautiful city situated on the Messinian Bay. Uh, Grant Cameron is with PresidentialUFO.com, and uh, he is the author of UFOs, Area 51, and Government Informants. Victor Vigiani in studio back in Toronto, the executive director of Zealand News Network. Uh, now, I want to I want to set aside a few moments before we close the program because there's a uh, uh, an article that you've posted on your your website, Grant. Uh, just a, a brief article about uh, Paul McCartney's uh, 
um, studio album, uh, Flaming Pie, which goes back to about 1997. I, I think it was one of his best solo efforts ever. And you made an interesting connection between that the, the title of that CD and a um, uh, John Lennon's uh, close encounter with a UFO back in the 70s. So I just just to sort of to warn you, I want to set a few moments moments aside, if we can, towards the tail end here, to, to uh, discuss that. But just briefly back to uh, Majestic 12. Um, let me ask you whether, because you and Victor were sort of hinting at this, I think, whether then Majestic 12 is behind, for example, the alien abduction uh, phenomenon or the the um, cattle or animal mutilation phenomenon. Because uh, I often hear from people in the UFO community, and there's so much infighting in there, as you know, that if someone brings up the issue of alien abduction or cattle mutilation, someone will say, oh, that's Majestic 12 at work. What are your thoughts? Uh, I think they mess around with it. For example, there's there's famous story told about the cattle mutilation where they have the gas mask and the radar chaff. And I'm thinking, well, you know, if they're using gas masks, why would you leave it behind? I mean, it's very easy to distort the thing. I think it's still a, an alien phenomena. And so the, the military comes in and they make it look like it could be them as well to keep everybody off balance. The uh, abduction, I'm, I know for a fact, I know, I know the guy who who's involved with the government, that if a high-level government guy is, is uh, taken and seems to be abducted, I know they send it to a, cer- a certain guy, and he looks to see, is this the Russians, the Chinese, is this aliens? They're trying to figure out, you know, what's wrong, what's gotten into this guy's head. So they are very interested. I guess it comes down to, if you look at Ronald Pendolfi, who is the former uh, top scientist in the CIA, he said to Dan Smith in 1991, who he was leaking material to, he said, we have a phenomenology problem. And because we cannot control the phenomena, we watch the people that are affected by the phenomena. So what they do, you hear these Milab stories, I think this is true, that you have people who are abducted and what they'll do is re-abduct the people and trying to find out what they are the aliens doing. So the government is involved, they're watching it, but the phenomena is still, I think, a little bit ahead of them that they really don't control this kind of stuff. They are watching the phenomena from the side and really, in some ways, don't have very very good control over what the aliens are doing. Let me throw it back over to you, Victor, for a question. Well, that's that's exactly one of the points I was trying to, uh, uh, you know, while you're while you're speaking, is exactly who does have control over this whole issue, and it really doesn't seem like anyone anyone really does. And which what it brings to mind uh, to me is w- what is the alien agenda, the so-called alien agenda, and do we really know in fact why they're here, what they're doing? So, in all the research you've done, Grant, um, and you've you're probably you know you, you definitely are one of the most preeminent individuals who can make a comment on this. What do you think the, the whole alien agenda really is? I, I think they're here. They, they appeared after the detonation of the atomic bomb. The first contactees appeared days after the first detonation of a hydrogen bomb. I think they're here. They're concerned about, uh, first of all, they were in the 50s and 60s. They're worried about atomic weapons. Now they're worried about the environment. We are at a point where consciousness is rising. I think they're taking us over this sort of hump. And I think the government has figured a lot of this stuff out. They have, or not the government, but the, the military industrial complex. This mental phenomena thing, I think, uh, we've got a long way and it's, it's, it's almost a different show, but I think we've gone a long way to figure out exactly the whole mental phenomena thing. And I think we've figured out a lot of this stuff. I think we know, uh, in science a little bit how this works. And if you go back to 1994, 1993, Ben Rich saying in a, in a lecture, he was the guy that had ran skunk works with the stealth, 
fighter, the you know U two, the SR seventy one, all the black budget programs. He said, "Now we now have the technology to take ET home. We've discovered the mistake in the equation." And he was asked by Jan Hartson, who's now the head of Mufon, international director for Mufon. He was asked as he was leaving the room, "How are they propelled?" And he said, "Let me ask you a question. What do you know about ESP?" And Jan Hartson said, "It means all things in time and space are connected." And he said. That's how it works. I think we're very far along. It's a, it's a whole nother show, but I think we're very far along to understanding exactly how they do it. And I think they're basically here for good reasons. I really do not believe they're here for evil reasons. That's my personal opinion, but I've done a lot of work on this in the last couple of years. Can I just take you back to the citizen hearings back in Washington? Uh, both you and I were there. You, uh, you provided some excellent testimony to the, uh, to the, uh, I guess the members, of, the former members of Congress. What was your basic intention when you you were seated at that desk and you had uh, a lot of research in front of you, and you had uh, many people behind you who were watching and listening, and you had the, the the members of the former members of Congress. What were you trying to impress these people with, with all of your uh, research? What was the key thing you were trying to make them aware of? Well, the one thing I was trying to get them aware of was the fact that, that this is this is a no-brainer. I mean, when the uh, Canadian government stands up, and I spent a lot of time talking about the Canadian top-secret memo in 1950, that you have a top-secret memo that says, number one, flying saucers are real. Number two, it's the most highly classified subject in the United States. There's a small group headed by Dr. Vandevar Bush. It's the most it, Americans consider to be of tremendous significance and mental phenomena is involved. That's in a top-secret memo. We can start from there and say we've known what's going on since 1950. There really is no mystery when you get to the highest levels of the government. That's what I was trying to get along. And later on, I started getting into this interaction with this guy from uh, Salt Lake City uh, who kept saying he didn't – he believed that his religion – the Mormon Church had told him that ETs were for real, but he didn't believe that we had the proof. So I sort of spent the last couple of times I testified trying to prove to him that there was actual documentation that says, yes, we've got a live alien. We uh, we know that there are aliens and there there is documents and there's proof. In the end, he still believed that the Mormon Church had better evidence than we had. I don't know where he got that from, but that's what I spent my time trying to convince them that uh, this is all for real. And we've known about it right from the word go, even, you know, the Ben Rich statement. And there's a lot of stuff that indicates that this is not that much of a mystery anymore. All right. Uh, listen, we've got about uh, five minutes here. And I I, um, I guess this this is for me, but I'm sure there are many people out there that would also be fascinated. I know there would be. And that has to do with uh, a recent posting on your website, uh, Grant, John Lennon's UFO Encounter. You begin by talking about Paul McCartney's uh, studio album released in 1997 entitled Flaming Pie, which is a rather interesting, uh, interesting name. So uh, lead us through that. Okay. It's basically a lot of people don't really realize that John Lennon, uh, had two experiences. One was a close encounter with Mei Pang, who was his assistant at one point. It was in her uh, condo in New York City, up on the uh, roof level. Uh, very, very close sighting. And then the second one that less people know about is the fact that he had a an encounter with uh, Yoko Ono. He was woke up. You know, he couldn't wake up Yoko Ono. Uh, he thought the, the, the condo was on fire. There was a fire in the hallway. There was light coming through the door, under the door, through the, the keyhole. And, uh, he couldn't wake, wake her up. So he went to the door. He opened the door and he said there was these effing bug, four people standing there, alien type bug people. 
And that's the last thing he remembered. The next thing he remembered, he had woken up on top of the covers and he had this egg, this bronze egg object in his hand, which indicates to me that this was an abduction type experience, that he had these two very dramatic experiences. He gives the egg to uh, uh, Yuri Geller, who confirmed to me, yes, that he had, had been given the egg. John said to him, he used to have coffee with him at a hotel there, and he said, uh, this may be my ticket to another planet, but I don't want anything to do with it. And here he gave it to him, and Yuri said, I've kept it with me all these years, and I've never had it analyzed because I was always afraid afraid to find out it was made in Taiwan. But he said, I've got the, the egg, I've kept it with me. It was given to me by John Lennon. And then it comes down to this whole idea that abductees will have these dreams, they'll have all these visions. And John Lennon, of course, tells the story when he's asked about why are the Beatles, why would, how would the Beatles get their name? Because they used to be known as the Beatles with two E's. And then the name changed to Beatles, B-E-A-T. So he's asked and he said, I had a vision, a man on a, on a flaming pie told me to change it to A. And that's why it's, it was known as the Beatles. And that was always a story that uh, a man on a flaming pie. So when uh, uh, McCartney puts out the album later on in 1998 or whatever it was, he puts out the album Flaming Pie. I, of course, go in to look at the lyrics, and the lyrics are kind of uh, hinting at it, but it's the front cover. Where you take a look at the front cover where they have this flaming pie, and you take a look at it, and it looks much more like a flying saucer than a flying pie. So uh, it's it's kind of an interesting thing, and I've got some people helping me in New York, and we're trying to track down all the various John Lennon stories about his encounters with UFOs. He told May Pang he thought he'd been abducted as a child, and so this is uh, a quite interesting that probably the most famous musician of the 20th century, may there's a good chance he was a UFO abductee. Fascinating, because uh, as you point out, I mean, he talked about it incessantly with friends, not necessarily with the media, but he talked about it with friends, and then he would later include a number of references to UFOs in some of his uh, songs. Of course, we're familiar yeah. with uh, Strange Days Indeed. And yeah. What are some of the yeah, other references? He, he, yeah, well, that was the main one, and uh, he put it on the album cover. He talked about it on the album cover, uh, and he did talk about the one with May Pang. He's talked about that one a number of times. Uh, there's actually audio tape of him talking about this a couple of times. So he was pretty open about that. The one with Yuri Geller, the only one that tells the story is Yuri Geller. And I've seen the, the egg. And then the strange thing with the egg was that there was a Milab case where, uh, two people, uh, were taken in a Milab experience. And when the one woman saw the egg, she said, they, uh, when she was in the Milab experience with mil- U.S. military people, they were teaching her to levitate that exact object off a table and through a hoop on top of the table, which is kind of bizarre that it was – when she saw the egg, she said that's exactly the object that we were levitating. It's a bizarre, bizarre story that just gets a little bit wider and wider and wider all the time that uh, – uh, so – and whether McCartney knew, I, I think he must have known the that John talked about UFOs and knew the UFO connection. And that's why when you look on the the, the cover of uh, uh, Flaming Pie, you'll see it looks like a UFO. It very clearly looks like a UFO. I think one of the main things uh, in, in, with regard to that comment, I think, is the the idea that Grant has mentioned several times over the uh, the past hours, the mental phenomenon in, involved in all of this, which is probably when everything boils down to when it, you know it's distilled down to which. Significant parts. It's the mental, the mental phenomenon aspect of, of this whole UFO phenomenon, which will prove very, very interesting as the uh, as disclosure pans out. 
Yeah, and that is, like I, I mentioned, the Canadians mentioned it, Ben Rich mentioned it, and Dr. Eric Walker in 1991 mentioned it. He cut us off and said, when we were talking about the MJ-12 group, we were asking how many people are on there. Is it internationally? He said, look, let me ask you a question. What do you know about ESP? And the guy who was interviewing from Great Britain didn't have an answer, so Walker answered it for himself. He said, look, unless you understand about ESP and how it works, you will not be taken in. And he's referring to the Majestic 12 Control Group. You will not be taken in unless you understand about ESP. Very few people understand about it. And then well, when I when I got onto that, then I find out that I've got 18 or 20 people who tell me that they've flown the flying saucer. The aliens are letting them fly the flying saucer. And I ask them all, and they all answer it the same way. How do you fly the flying saucer? And they say, you do it with your mind. Well, that is um, something that we'll pick up on next time, Grant. We'll do. We'll dedicate the entire hour to this mental phenomenon uh, and the connection to UFOs. Always a pleasure, uh, Grant Cameron, PresidentialUFO.com, and of course our good friend Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network. Gentlemen, both, thank you. Thank you, sir. Tim Spreen, back in studio. Thank you. I'll see you in a couple of weeks when I get back. Uh, in the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be. Re- Nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.